From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While the swamp comes alive seven times during the fall, it only sees action once during the winter, spring, and summer. That day has arrived, with Dan Mullen getting ready to lead the Gators into his second orange and blue game on Saturday. On today's show, we'll preview the scrimmage, discuss a shocking end for gymnastics, address the Jekyll and Hyde baseball squad, highlight the red-hot men's tennis team, hear about women's golf making history at Augusta National, check in on cheese in the NBA, and debate the greatest redemption stories in sports. Plus, defensive backs coach Torian Gray stops by to explain the roundabout path he took to get back to Gainesville and what he expects from his banged-up unit going into the fall. But first, expectations are climbing for year two under Dan Mullen, and this weekend is the start of the hype train leading up to the season. Having said that, it's still a long time until Florida and Miami kick off in Orlando, so the orange and blue game is the only football fix available until August. So to open a loaded roundtable, we asked Scott and Chris what they expect to see on Saturday. Like most spring games, uh, you're wanting to see your young players uh, make some progress from you know the spring camp and from where they were last year. Uh, it's a chance to look, in Florida's case, at nine mid-year enrollees who we haven't seen on the field before except for these practices the past couple of weeks. And you can just sense from Dan Mullen, his tone during camp, I think maybe even more than some other coaches I've I've covered, he really uses the spring game as a chance to look at those young players in depth. And he's not too concerned about watching Felipe Franks and Michael P. Ryan and David Reese because he knows what those guys can do. Uh, he wants to see guys like Emory Jones and Kyle Trask and, you know, Iverson Clement at running back, guys who just haven't had an opportunity to play a lot and certainly not an opportunity to play a lot in front of a big crowd at the Swamp. And we're going to see a two-hour game, according to Dan Mullen. It's going to last two hours on the dot. Uh, we're going to probably see some trickery, some fun. Uh, you can just tell in Dan Mullen's time around here, this is his second spring game. He likes to have some fun and entertain the fans on on the spring game. It, it's it's more than just about football. Uh, we saw that last year when he had a couple of former players make catches <laughs> off the sidelines. So I, I think early on it will be serious. He'll we'll get a look at some of those young players that I just mentioned, and then after that first period, maybe the second half, it's a little more fun, a little more fan friendly. Uh, and more than anything, you just want to see them in the day nobody get hurt uh, everybody have fun and and a little better evaluation for the coaching staff on guys that they they still have question marks about yeah I don't have a whole lot to add to that other than emphasis on fun was was key last year I mean he, he talked about that all the time you know from a coaching standpoint you want you want to see guys be on sides you want to see you know guys knowing where they're supposed to be and doing their job and what have you but uh I don't think they overemphasize exactitude, if you will. That stuff is nice to see, but and there's plenty of time to clear up a lot of the mistakes. And I think more than anything else, you do want to see you want to see guys that haven't played in the swamp before. 
that entails, like Scott said, the, the new enrollees, but a, a lot of those guys that didn't get a lot of reps last year. I mean, uh, I think a lot of focus, I'm sure we'll talk more about this over the course of the next few months. A lot of the focus is going to be about rebuilding that offensive line. So they're, they're going to want to see some good reps from those guys and what have you. But uh, I don't think the spring game now in 2019 is what spring games were 30 years ago when you know Steve Spurrier uh got here or the year before that or it's morphed into more of a more of a county fair kind of thing yes. uh, event and a time for guys to come back uh, former players to talk to current players and Mullen has brought that back to this program and I think in a, in a, in a big way it was needed I mean he, he talks about the Gator standard all the time part of his vernacular when when, when dealing with the team um, I'm writing a story this week about that very subject and how when he gets a chance to have former players talk to his, his current team, he's, he's going to do that. And the message is almost always, it's almost universally the same of what it, what it means to be a, a Florida Gator in the spring game with so many guys coming back is a time to reconnect the past and maybe put some guys in front of his team. And I think, uh, I think the Pouncey brothers will be here this week. Hmm. Uh, about that Gator standard a little bit as they go into the spring game. Certainly they had a front row view for uh, a couple championships um, when Mullen was here the first time around. In terms of the future and, and certain guys who I know fans want to see, who's intriguing for the two of you? Which new and which early enrollee or maybe which underutilized player from last season are you looking to maybe have that moment where you say, okay, this is the guy to look out for? Because it doesn't always happen in a spring game, but sometimes there is that name that stands out and, and they do translate to the fall. People always talk about quarterbacks, and we know Felipe Franks is, is the quarterback in Florida. I just know last year in the, in the spring games I went to, you know, candidly, I, I wasn't that impressed with, Emory, with Emory Jones, uh, the passer. And then I saw Emory Jones in the fall as a passer, and I said, he's a little bit better. We saw a, a couple throws of his in, the, in, you know, limited throws during the regular season, including everyone was gushing. Uh, after the Georgia game, that he should be the starting quarterback after that throw. Of course, Felipe Franks answered those critics in the in the wake of that. But Emory Jones is probably going to play a lot, and Scott Scott could speak to this a lot better. But in terms of who will probably be out there more than anybody else, I would imagine it would be him. You know, if something were to happen to Felipe Franks, who's who's next in line? And it would be Emory Jones. And we just don't know a lot about him. But I know if he grew as much as he did as a passer and in the system from last spring into the fall. And what I saw of him in fall practice, how much he'd improved with his accuracy and what have you, because he wasn't very accurate this time last year. Uh, I imagine the, his growth over the past 12 months has been pretty profound, and that could be on display uh, when these guys take the field on Saturday. Yeah, I think uh, Emory Jones is number one on that list of most people because of a lot of what Chris just spoke about. If something does happen to Felipe Franks, uh, Emory Jones is likely the guy to go in there and and this is a chance for Dan Mullen to give him a lot of uh, quality reps against uh, first-team defense in front of uh, you know a lot, a lot of people in the swamp. And uh, you've got to have that to continue to develop. And otherwise, I'm looking at a guy like John Greenyard, uh, the transfer from Louisville, who will uh, you know at least through spring camp looks like the starter at that buck position, a veteran guy who missed most of last year, but a big pickup for the Gators in the offseason considering the departure of Ja'Kai Polite and C.C. Jefferson. Uh, I'll be watching him closely, a veteran guy who will look to be, even though he's going to only be here for a year, he'll look to be a, a leader on that defense with David Reese and C.J. Henderson. And then going back to uh, the young players, 
I think Chris Still, the freshman defensive back from Los Angeles, has probably gotten the most attention during camp of, of the new guys. And then, of course, Adam, uh, the offensive line. I mean, I'll watch all those guys because I think that's just the, the area of most concern at this point. Um, what is that group going to be? Guys like Christopher Bleich, you know, Richard Garage, uh, Gene DeLance, uh, guys we haven't seen a lot they're going to be out there they're going to get a lot of reps and it'll be interesting to see just how they perform because uh, they've been outmanned through camp so far uh, do they play better in the spring game or do we see all the flaws that John Hevesy the offensive line coach has mentioned and do those get corrected by fall camp because they're going to have to so we'll obviously have more to talk about next week in terms of which guys actually do show up in that spring game and one thing that we will not be talking about next week, which is, uh, to be honest, just really shocking, is gymnastics at NCAA championships. Because for the first time in almost 20 years, uh, they failed to advance the championships. And, you know, Scott, it's, it's crazy how this happened. And we heard Chris last week gave us the breakdown of, of the new format. But it really wasn't even that so much that, that cost Florida. It was just at the worst possible time, some critical mistakes coming from places where you just wouldn't expect it. Now you're right, Adam. There were some critical mistakes that I don't think anyone saw coming. I mean, the beam basically did them in early, and then Elisa Obama had a, a mistake on floor that really proved costly, and it was kind of a stunning development. Um, they go out to Corvallis, Oregon, and you like the chances of them uh, advancing as one of the top eight seeds in the postseason, and I think the Gators are only one of those uh, eight seeds who didn't advance, and uh, it was a crushing end to the season for a team that a lot of people had pegged, you know, as being one of the two or three that were going to be standing at the end. And we haven't seen that since 2000 or so. Yeah. So it's a little unusual uh, to see the Gators not in the NCAA finals. And, you know, it's going to be one of those things where they have a lot of talent coming back. Uh, they're losing a, some key pieces. Alicia Bourne is the one that you know, unfortunately, she was one who had a mistake on the beam. And and you kind of got the sense, Adam, that when that happened for her, oh, boy, this might not be the Gators night. Mm -hmm. And we just saw that kind of unfold over the course of the night. And it, it was just a d disappointing end. When you have to go first on the beam and you have someone fall, all right, now there's a lot of pressure. And then you have a second person fall. That means you have to count one of the falls. So now you're playing from behind. And I'm sure you're pressing. I'm sure that helped lead to... Alyssa Bowman probably thought she had to be perfect. Um, she wasn't. Um, I'm sure they all thought they had to be perfect. And, yeah, it was a shocking result. It's just not something that you would expect to see. It had nothing to do with the new format and whatever. Um, you know, Florida was expected to be one of the two to get out of their region. Um, but like Scott said, there are eight, the eight high seats, uh, seven of them advanced. And, unfortunately, Florida was the one. And I talked to Jenny Rowland in the run-up to those regions, and she looked at me and played. She, she was saying, this team is really, really good. We have a chance. So I'm sure uh, it was disheartening for everyone in that program. I know there were a lot of tears uh, in the locker room afterward, but uh, there'll be a handful of, of those uh, young ladies that will go to uh, Fort Worth this um, next weekend, rather, and um, and compete for individual titles. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if whether it's Trinity Thomas or somebody else is able to come home with an individual trophy. But uh, sad ending, but maybe they scratch something out of it on an individual basis. I want to move on to baseball. This is just the, the most confounding of Gator teams, at least if you look at it from Florida State's perspective, because the Gators are now out of the top 25, breaking a really long streak of being in that poll, and they're struggling mightily to beat people in the SEC. And yet, 
they swept Florida State again. So uh, maybe the answer is just play Florida State every weekend and, and then Florida will be back on the right side of things. Well, I think Florida would take that. Um, <laughs> I don't think Seminoles would right now. One curious note out of that with the victory against uh, FSU on Tuesday night, they Mike Martin, uh, he, he had a winning record against the Gators in his career until this season. He dropped to 76 and 77 all wow. time. So unless they meet up again in the postseason, uh, the Gators, you know, swept the Knolls. I think they've won 11 in a row now against uh, Florida State, 17 of 18, and obviously uh, send Mike Martin off with a losing record all time. But it's an interesting team because they have not played well in the SEC at all. I think to me, when I look at this team, there, some of the struggles aren't that surprising because when you lose three first-round draft picks like Brady Singer, Jackson Coar, and Johnson India, you're going to have a drop-off. The young players have actually held their own, I think. The key to me is uh, uh, the two starters who I thought would be a lot better, Jack Leftwich and Tyler Dyson. Both guys are struggling. And I look at it more toward Dyson. He's the junior. A lot of guys are like, we all thought he was going to be the Friday night starter maybe get back to that form that we saw in the uh, Game 3 win against LSU two years ago to clinch the national title. And for whatever reason, he's just been able to uh, to regain that form, and it was something that we saw last year, and it's kind of carried over into this year. So when you have that him struggling, and you have uh, you know the left-hander out of the bullpen, Jordan Butler, he is nowhere near what we saw last year, really good last year. Uh, so it's an unusual Unusual issue that Kevin O'Sullivan and his staff have. The pitching, I think, uh, Adam, they rank last in the SEC at ERA around 4.60, wow. which that's just foreign territory to the Gators under Kevin O'Sullivan. Again, they're, they're out of the top uh, 25 for the first time, I think, in over five years. Uh, but they still have a winning record. They're 4-8 in the SEC. If they can somehow right the ship and get better pitching, I think their offensive is doing enough to win some more games. But, you know, when you get down early, as we've seen, uh, you know, against, what, two SEC series now, Mississippi State and then at Ole Miss and then at Vanderbilt, uh, it's hard to win. And it's certainly hard to win when your pitching is not doing it, whether it's uh, in the middle or at the back end. Uh, so some question marks there, how it's going to turn out. Uh, the only thing they can really do right now is to keep working and see if they can get some better efforts on the mound. and and try to turn it around, or otherwise I think we're just going to see them kind of sputter along like this. Beat the teams that they're just have more talent, but when they face those elite teams, uh, the pitching might not be there this year. On the flip side of that, uh, softball had a big sweep this past weekend at home against Arkansas, a top 20 team, so important change of pace for them, and as we kind of continue the conversation toward Gator teams that are having more success right now, I think we have to talk about men's tennis. It's not something we have a chance to get to very often, but they're in kind of having uh, one of those banner years where they're starting to turn heads around the conference. Well, you know, they quietly snuck up to what? They were number two, and I don't know how this works. They've won 11 in a row, and the new rankings came out here saying they somehow dropped to number three. So that's all I need to know about tennis rankings. I mean, <laughs> I just know that they're in the control to win the SEC. I'm sorry, they've won 13 in a row overall, 11-0 and 0 in the SEC. Uh, this is a chance for, the, believe it or not, Florida has not won an outright SEC title. Uh, since 2003, so this has been a long time coming, and they haven't uh, won one at all since 05 when they mm -hmm. shared it with Ole Miss. So Brian Shelton and his staff, I talked to him earlier this week, and you know we all hear about coaches talking about the process, and he even prefaced the conversation like, "Hey, you've 
you've heard some of this before, but it's true. And here's how it worked for us. And here's what it looks like when it's going well. I mean, when he took over the program, Adam, there wasn't the buy-in that he needed. And it took him a couple years to kind of get things where he wanted it. And then what they've done now is really won some good recruiting battles. And they've, they've got a very talented roster with Oliver Crawford, uh, at the top, uh, freshman Sam Rafis playing really well at number two and three. Veterans like Alfredo Perez still contributing. So you've got a team that's really strong from one through six at singles, and they just have the right attitude. Uh, they don't get bothered by much. And Shelton says they're not playing as well as he wants in doubles. They've lost the doubles points in several matches this year. But he said with this group, it doesn't even they don't even flinch. They're very competitive with. Crawford kind of setting the tone as a as the alpha male up there. He gets his team pumped up during the match, before the match, and you know once his match ends, he's right there as their biggest cheerleader. They feed off of that, and a lot of uh, things that Brian Shelton has tried to work to put together the last, believe it or not, it's his seventh year. Uh, they've really come together this year. They've had success under him. They won the SEC tournament title in 2016. And they've been knocking at the door in the postseason, reaching the Elite Eight twice. But they they have the look of a national title contender in 2019. And they finish out at home in the SEC uh, on Sunday. They win the match. They're uh, sole champions of the uh, the league. And then they open the postseason where the SEC tournament this year, Adam, is in Gainesville for hmm. the first eight years. So a lot, of, uh, a lot of exciting things going on with the men's tennis program right now. And... Uh, their time to shine and really if you haven't followed them or looked at them closely might be now is a good time because they're going to should be in the picture come NCAA tournament so good to see men's tennis with all that success and we also try and showcase former Gators that are having success and specifically in the NBA uh there's a bunch of them including Chris Chris Chioza who I think a lot of people probably didn't expect to see in the NBA a few years ago but now here he is yeah, like anything else, you know, reaction to how a player plays his freshman year, whether it's Florida or just about anywhere else that's not um, Duke, Kentucky or you know, North Carolina or Kansas or somewhere like that. I mean, Chris Chioza was a, a developmental player. He was a four year player. I still remember um, it was after the his big steal his senior year against Missouri uh, and went in and made that layup as the, at the final buzzer. I remember some Kentucky fan tweeted at me. Chioza, it seems like he's been there for 10 years. I said, I tweeted back. I go, no, he's a senior in Kentucky. A senior is like a, a like Bigfoot. You never seen. <laughs> uh, really, I mean, his defense got better. His shooting got better. Chris Chioza, people remember this. He was a 46% free throw shooter as a freshman. Wow. Against Texas A&M, uh, Billy was trying to win his 500th career game, and they kept fouling Chioza. He kept missing free throws against Texas A&M, and there and Billy has him in a timeout. The game, he goes, I hope they keep fouling you. I hope they keep fouling you and you keep missing them so you can know how to deal with this. So you know how to deal with this the rest of your career. And he, and he learned how to deal with it. He became an all-SEC uh, player and um, he did not get drafted. No one thought he was going to draft it, but he was signed by the G League uh, Washington Wizards team. Twice the Houston Rockets signed him to uh, contracts to their active roster. And uh, I, I don't know how this all works relative to the postseason uh, teams, but you know he got he got in some games. I think he made a three point shot in one game. He didn't play a lot. He's averaging less than a point game when he, when it ended up. But uh, uh, this is something you probably don't know, Adam. You probably didn't know that to the end of the season, Michael Frazier got signed by the Houston Rockets as well. Did not know uh, that. Yeah, and uh, he was a player in the in the G League playoffs. He was in the 
one of their one of their playoff series and actually averaged almost 29 points a game through the first two year, two weeks of the of the G League playoffs. So uh, he's a guy who kind of came out of nowhere. Um, uh, Devin Robinson played the last couple games for the Wizards on their active roster. I saw some kind of tomahawk dunk where he was doing his posing and stuff uh, in, in a game, of course, that didn't matter late in the season against the Celtics, I think, uh, Tuesday night in the last game of the season there. So there were some, there were some uh, former Gators spread around the uh, – the NBA late in the season and it's good for them. Um, that's good for the brand. I think uh, down the line, there's a player coming in here uh, uh, next year by the name of Scotty Lewis. We've talked about him and mm. I think he will, I think he will stop the, uh, the trend. I don't, I don't see a Gator being drafted in this draft coming up. Uh, it'll be the sixth draft, I think in a row that no Florida player has been drafted, but I think that'll probably change next year, but we would be remiss if we didn't mention another former Gator who was uh, in the news in the national championship game for Texas Tech, Brandon yes. France, he was the reason um, Texas Tech was in the game in the national championship game because their best players weren't scoring. And uh, Brandon Francis had 17 points. Uh, and most he ever scored here, I think, it was nine. And uh, uh, certainly uh, that's a testament to, again, the thing that I talk about is the, the developmental thing. People were very hard on Brandon Francis here for his inability to shoot. And let's, you know, let's not sugarcoat it. The guy was shot less than 17% from three. But just what you do in one year here doesn't mean that's who you're going to be. For all I know, he could have stayed here and became, and become the kind of role player he was. Uh, he was a big part of that team, and obviously he was a big part of keeping them alive in that championship game with those 17 points. I think he hit three threes, and his points seemed to come at critical times when maybe Virginia was trying to take the lead out a little bit, and his team really needed a basket. But uh, good for him. He's he's not going to be in the NBA, but he's going to play professionally somewhere uh, like a lot of these guys are. And that was kind of maybe maybe Florida's uh, connection to that. And I'm sure there, there are probably some people that were probably pulling for him. I know there's people over in the Florida basketball office that were happy to see uh, Brandon Francis uh, end his career like that. Moving things over to golf, another sport we don't get to talk about a lot, but uh, I know it was a, a good opportunity last week for Scott Carter to check something off his bucket list because the Gators were competing in the amateur championship up at Augusta National. And while this week it'll probably be a little more crowded, Scott, you were able to uh, fulfill one of those longtime dreams, I know, getting to go to Augusta. Tell us about it. Yeah, a couple of Gators playing in the inaugural Augusta National Women's Amateur, which, quite frankly, I was a little late to the party on this uh, Last week, I'm listening to uh, women's golf SID Lucy Barris talk about uh, this tournament that's such a big deal in women's golf. And I'm thinking, OK, what is this? I don't know a lot about it. So I researched it. Golf Digest called it basically the biggest tournament to come along in the game in decades as far as for the women. And what it was, it was a, uh, you know, Augusta National. We know the history of the course. We know it's the side of the Masters. Uh, we, we know all about the Azaleas and, and Butler Cabin. But we were, a lot of people don't know they've never had a women's tournament there. Mm-hmm. And at the 2018 Masters, new chairman Fred Ridley, who happens to be a University of Florida graduate, played golf here. He uh, now is chairman of Augusta National and the Masters and, and is a, an attorney down in Tampa in, in his other career. He announced that they were, for the first time ever, they're going to have a women's tournament at Augusta. It was going to feature the top uh, 60 amateurs in the world 30 internationally 30 american and they would have about 12 more invitees at the committee's discretion it just so happened gators sierra brooks and marta perez were in the top 30 marta on the international side sierra brooks on the u.s side and not only did they go up there and play the first two rounds at champions retreat which is near augusta national uh, they both were among the 
30 players to qualify. Uh, there's field started out with 72. Both Gators made the final cut and were among the 30 players who got to play a practice round on Friday and then the tournament on Saturday. And, and Adam, I mean, I, you know, for our audience out there who knows about Augusta National and sees it on TV every year, it's the real deal. I was very impressed. The, uh, the scenery was amazing. The course is beautiful. It's everything you think it is. But for Sierra Brooks and Marta Perez, I mean, this was a tremendous opportunity for them to be showcased on, you know, national television uh, at Augusta National. And, and neither one had the round they wanted to in the final round. Uh, Sierra Brooks opened the day. at She was third in the standings. Uh, Marta Perez was 11th. Marta Perez had a really good front nine, birdie three or four holes at one stretch and moved up to the leaderboard, but kind of faded in the second uh, nine. And Sierra, she... She just fought it all day, shot four over, only had one birdie, and she finished tied for 10th. Perez finished tied for 21st, but it was an experience that, you know, both of their fathers got the caddy for them. Gators golf coach Jim Lee Glazer and assistant Janice Oliveris, they went around the course with them. And, and Adam, I walked the course with Sierra Brooks every hole, and I can tell you right now, my legs are still a little sore, so... <laughs> Uh, I carried something back home with me other than a couple of stories. Uh, but uh, it was a great, great event, great experience for them. And this is a, a tournament that, you know, both players are only juniors. So they have a chance to qualify for this thing again next year. From what I read from the national media, people who I saw there talk to the Masters officials could have gone better. I mean, there were thousands of people. It wasn't quite a Masters crowd where I'm told they kind of maxed it at about 40,000 a day. Hmm onto the grounds but there was at least 20 or 25,000 there uh for this event and it was the biggest uh, gallery that either player had ever seen in their whole lives as far as playing in front of so uh, as i said something they will not forget that's very cool very cool i'm hoping at one point to get to augusta just to even see the chorus which i'm told is uh probably the, the most overwhelming part of the whole experience but uh moving on to our pat I want to talk about redemption stories because maybe I'm, I'm buying into it too much, but I just found it really compelling that Virginia went from the most humiliating, embarrassing loss, arguably in the history of basketball, all things considered, to coming back the next year and winning the national championship and the way they did it, how unlikely it was and how classy they were from the disappointment all the way to the success. So in light of that, I'm, I'm curious for the two of you, What's maybe your favorite redemption story that you've either seen in sports or that you've personally covered? In, in your prompt to us, just telling that, that this would be the, the topic, um, I was trying to think. And, you know, I have a few that just come to my head. I remember when uh, Trent Dilfer won the Super Bowl in Tampa, uh, came back for the Baltimore Ravens. And, you know, he wasn't a great quarterback by any stretch of the imagination, but he was run out of Tampa. And, I wouldn't say vilified, but he was a he was certainly a, a punching bag there and came back in the win. I remember when Doug Williams uh, won the Super Bowl and um, after he the Bucks didn't want him and he ended up going to the USFL and came back and you know had a, a maybe the greatest quarter in the history of the NFL um, when he threw those five touchdown passes and um, another one kind of under the radar. This is before you were born, Adam, but when Michael Jordan won a NCAA title, he won it because Fred Brown, okay threw the ball, a Georgetown guard, threw the ball to James Worthy on the last possession. And uh, two years later, Fred Brown, he was a sophomore time, two years later, Fred Brown won the won the championship for Georgetown or with Patrick Ewing in Georgetown. That was, uh, and I remember him hugging John Thompson at the end of that game and crying. And that was very redemptive. But in terms of teams, there's nothing that compares to this. I said at the time, it's one of the best stories in the history of sports. 
because you can't go from where that team was a year ago and losing to, to Maryland, Baltimore County, and then dancing like they were on all, mostly the same players. Mm-hmm. It, it is truly remarkable the way the coach handled it, the way they took on the, the burden of that loss and used it as, as motivation instead of saying we weren't going to talk about it. They said they were going to conf- confront it. Run to the roar, I think, was one of the terms that they used early on. He found every kind of motivational ploy in terms of confronting a demon that you could possibly have and just put it at the forefront. And just, I would watch these post-game press conferences and to see the questions lobbed their way. I, Ty Jerome kept saying, I get asked this after every game, you know, and, and they talked about it after every game. And I don't know if they wanted to or not, but they did. And in my opinion, it begins and ends there. This is the best redemption story ever. I mean, I don't know that there will, uh, it will be a long time before there's any, anyone that even compares to this. That is a very bold take best of all time. So Scott, I mean, I'm not sure how you follow that. Chris is already, he's, he's laid down the hammer, I guess. Well, Chris has a Virginia sweatshirt. <laughs> he is all in. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I totally agree with what he said. I mean, it's, it is a tremendous story. And I was watching the game the other night, and I didn't really have a rooting interest, but I did get to see Tony Bennett some during the course of the tournament. Hey, if you don't like that guy, you something's wrong with you. I mean, I really was glad that they pulled it out and they, they overcame uh, that adversity, but you know, I'll start with a couple that just stick out in my mind. One, I think, right here at UF. I mean, <laughs> I was a pretty diehard Gator fan back in '95 when they went out to Nebraska and lost by 38 in the national championship game, and I was I was kind of a pretty diehard Gator fan when they lost to Florida State in '96, and I think it ruined their chances. And it wasn't as a direct redemption story is what Virginia was able to do but for Florida to be able to come back what a month later and beat Florida State and win a national title I think that's one obviously is going to resonate with their audience uh, those are not direct as what Virginia is to go one year to the next uh, uh, that's a great one the worst too. loss in history to the one of the greatest wins in history I just mm-hmm. I, I just don't know that you can uh, I, I, that's going to be really really hard to hard to top yeah, you know, I, I thought about what Virginia did, and I thought wouldn't it have been cool if the Falcons had done that uh, after blowing the Super Bowl, but alas, uh, it did not happen. Maybe it will someday, but so far, uh, no redemption for uh, for my team in Atlanta. But uh, there's always chances for you guys to redeem yourself because you're constantly pumping out content over on FloridaGators.com. People can follow you at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. Lots of Gator sports going on this weekend, especially the Orange and Blue game. They will have it covered, so make sure to check them out. Gentlemen, thank you very much as always. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Adam. When coaching changes occur, rarely do players get to choose their new leader. But thanks to a strange turn of events earlier this spring, the Gators were able to rein Torian Gray back into the swamp after he departed the program a few years ago to work in the NFL. If you're wondering why his former players were so fond of him, you're about to find out, just like we did, why the DBs wanted their coach back. Uh, my family is originally from, well, actually my grandparents. Um, I, I was raised with my grandparents because my mother had me young and they came from Alabama. So they had the Alabama roots, but all of us have always known Lakeland, Florida, me and my cousins and my siblings. So um, you know, grew up in Lakeland, Florida, ended up attending Kathleen High School, um, got a college scholarship to Virginia Tech. Today, Lakeland is known as a real hotbed for high school football. Was it that way back then, or was it different when you were there? Yeah, I think Lakeland has always been, uh, as far as guys having the talent. Um, when I was coming up, man, I remember we had um, Coach Castle, who was still 
doing an excellent job. And uh, there was like a lot of the talented guys that were still going to college. But um, man, the years I was coming up as I was just coming in, into high school, you know, we had like the Camp Brothers and McAfee and just a lot of great athletes. And Kathleen was a pretty good football school for a short amount of time. But Lakeland, I would say, has been a consistent school over time, obviously, with what Castle's done. But um, it's always been a hotbed between those two schools. And then Lake Gibson and George Jenkins now coming along. And, and you know, it's pretty consistent for producing guys. So going up to Virginia Tech, that was obviously a little bit of a hike there. What led you to Va Tech, and, and what was it like playing for Coach Beamer? What led me to Va Tech was I wasn't heavily recruited coming out. You know, I had, like, offers from Kansas, Kansas State, uh, Florida A&M, and I took my visit to Virginia Tech and felt something good there. I felt I can go there and contribute and play early. And, you know, at the end of the day, obviously, it ended up being a great decision for me as I was able to start for three and a half years, become a second-round draft pick with the Minnesota Vikings and play for a Hall of Fame coach in Frank Beamer, who not only helped my career um, from a collegiate standpoint, but from a professional standpoint with me being able to come back and work there at Virginia Tech for 10 years. So when you were at Vod Tech was also the first time you crossed paths with uh, Todd Grantham, who is now uh, one of your coworkers. So what do you remember about him back in those days? <laughs> Push, pull, rip your gap, man. I remember... <laughs> You know, that, that uh, he was the D-line coach, and I just remember uh, him screaming and yelling that part, uh, push, pull, rip your gap, and, and that type of deal there. He was high energy, you know, high intensity, high focus, and that's what I remember from Coach Grantham. You mentioned your three years playing for the Minnesota Vikings. I'm curious, when you look back on that, what, what was your best memory from your playing days in the NFL? I would have to say my rookie year, being able to start on the playoff team that beat the New York Giants. Uh, we were down. It was some kind of crazy ending. I think we were down maybe 10 points with less than two minutes or three minutes or some something where we shouldn't have won the game. But I can't even remember how we ended up pulling out the game. But we ended up winning the game, and that was probably my, my biggest memory with the Vikings there. Now, you were on the 98 team as well, correct? Yes, so one of the, I'm sure, toughest moments of your career was one of the best moments of my life because I'm a Falcons fan. So, oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, what, what do you remember about that game? Because that's, that's one of the more famous games, uh, especially in the Vikings history, I know, and, and the Falcons kind of for different reasons. Well, I remember that Gary Anderson had not missed a field goal all year. That's right. I remember standing on the sideline. I've had what it came to become. I didn't know at the time, but it um, was a career-ending injury, so I couldn't. I didn't finish out that season. I played halfway through that season, got injured, and I'm on the sideline. I'm like, man, we're about to go to the Super Bowl. Gary Anderson hasn't missed a, a field goal all year, and he goes out, and, you know, I'm like, man, this is going to be awesome. Great experience. The Metrodome is so loud and exciting right now, and then he ended up missing it, and we ended up losing in overtime. So that was just kind of a, a big letdown from, from there. I apologize for bringing that back up to you, but I, I realized I said, you know, he was there at the same time. And sometimes they, you know, those paths cross. Uh, That's right. <laughs> so you, you mentioned the injury and obviously that ended your playing days. And at this point you transitioned into coaching. Some people are born to coach. Others sort of fall into it. What was your route there? Was it something you'd thought about doing or did it, did it just sort of happen? I knew I wanted to do something in sports. I always loved getting up each day and reading the Lakeland Ledger and reading the newspaper. So I'm like, well, maybe I'll write and um, be a sportscaster or do something of that nature. And then as I was playing in college, um, I was really influenced by Coach Almation, who was one of my defensive back coaches, and he was the off defensive coordinator when he was there. And he just kind of 
motivated me to maximize my potential. And I'm like, man, you know, I, I think I, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to, to motivate guys to maximize their potential and have a coming goal and, and be able to help a team win. And um, so that kind of got my head geared toward wanting to be a coach. It seems like most coaches pull a little bit from a lot of different people they played under. So obviously, Coach Mason was the start of that. What other things did you pick up along the way from coaches who influenced you that you then used yourself? Well, you take a piece of all the um, coaches who were big influences in your life. Um, coach Beamer, um, hell of a coach, but he was never an up and down guy. Um, you always knew where you stood with him. Coach Foster, hell of a defensive coordinator, you know, were two of the bigger influences at both uh, as a player and as a coach, um, being around those guys for as long as I was. You know, those are the two names that come to the to the forefront because they covered such a great span of my coaching career and my life, um, you know, and my football career. So your first coaching job was at Maine, which is a far cry from where you are now. Uh, how challenging was that? given that you grew up in Florida, being in Maine, so both from a lifestyle standpoint and trying to learn the, the ropes of college coaching? You know, I was just eager and wanting an opportunity, so going to Maine really didn't didn't bother me at all. I actually, you know, was grateful to Coach Jack Cosgrove for giving me that opportunity of a guy who had never coached before, and, you know, so I was just really thankful and grateful to have that opportunity, and yeah, Maine is cold, but uh, so was Minnesota, um, so, you know, it's <laughs> I'm like, well, maybe I just meant to keep migrating north and, right. or to the cold weather. So <laughs> after being in Minnesota, it wasn't like the weather or anything was any any different. After that, you go to UConn and then you make a jump to the NFL. What were the biggest differences and challenges at that level relative to college? Well, when you're in college, the guys, they're not making money yet. They're still amateurs. And those guys obviously are going to take what you say and run with it, you know, as long as you're giving them proper information and they trust you, obviously. The pro level is different because you have to prove to those guys that you can help them help them first. You know, those guys are, are grown men and they're making money and stuff like that, so you kind of got to earn their respect as far as to be able to, to help them out. After that experience in the NFL, you go back into college coaching and you go to work for Frank Beamer. And I know you were there for almost a decade back, you're all modern. What was that dynamic like compared to when you played for him? We were looked upon in an entirely different light. When I first got there in 92, we were this hard-working blue-collar team, which we always kept that identity. But, you know, we were, like, coming off a 2 8 one season, and and um, we were just starting to build that bowl streak that year after we were 2 8 one I guess I was the – my registered freshman year was the year that started that 25 or however many years it's been now, bowl streak. So, you know, we had just started to win and, and, and get an identity. So when I came back to Virginia Tech in 2005, after I graduated in 96, it was already this established monster who played for a national championship, who was getting high profile recruits. It was just, you know, just had a different feel about it because um, the Torian Grays of the world from Florida, not necessarily, you know, well, we were getting the bigger prospects from Virginia and in and, and that, and that area at that time because, you know, we were winning. And like I said, you had the Michael Vick experience that came through. Yeah. And, and those type of deals like that. So it was just kind of, you know, just stepped up a whole couple notches. So you're at Virginia Tech for almost a decade, and then you come to Florida, the first time you come to Florida. So I'm curious, the first time you came down south, how did that come together? Well, Coach Beamer um, had retired during the season, and, you know, I'm like, man, I've been at Virginia Tech for 
for 10 years, I don't know how much longer Coach Beamer is going to go, man. But, you know, I love coaching there. We had the great defenses with Coach Foster and the DBU reputation going on. I'm like, man, this is cool. This is awesome. I can do this for however long. And then he ends up retiring and the new coach comes in and he ended up keeping me on board. But um, Florida had inquired some interest. And I was like, well, if there's any place I would leave my alma mater for, it would be to come and be two hours away from home mm-hmm. in Florida. It's the SEC. So um, I was intrigued, and um, it ended up ended up going in that direction. So then you went back to the NFL after the 2016 season up with Washington, and you probably weren't expecting to be back here so soon, but I know it was kind of an interesting situation that happened, and uh, a lot of guys lobbied you to, to come back here. So tell us about what happened uh, earlier this spring when, when this all sort of came back around again. Well, I guess like any of us, human nature, it's good to be wanted and know you're wanted, <laughs> and, you know, I'm just sitting up in my house on a Saturday night and watching college basketball or whatever's on TV. I can't remember exactly. And I just get a text and with the Washington Redskins, it was, you know, whether they were going to bring me back or whatnot, or, you know, it's just some indecision there. And I was like, man, okay, you know, well, coach Gray, would you come back? Do you want to Taylor text me? And then Marco uh, texts me and then he calls me. I was like, well, dude, you guys got to ask the coach. <laughs> blah, 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 um, I would be open to it, man. Uh, you know, I the first time I came to Florida, I thought I was going to be here for a long while. That was my thought. That was my plan and ended up going to Washington. So to have an opportunity to come back, I know my wife would, she would love it, my fiance, whoever, because, um, you know, her parents had moved down here the first time and they're still down here. So I was like, man, that that would be pretty cool. I'd get back home, we'd be around our family and um, it just all ended up working out and, and coming together. But like I said, man, it was cool for those guys to reach out and um, want me to be able to come back. So outside of coaching, you mentioned your family you have now. Tell us about your current family and uh, what are some things you enjoy doing when you're not working or traveling or recruiting? My current family, I have a 20-year-old who's um, a junior at the University of Virginia hmm. and then with my current fiance now we have a four-year-old well she'll be four this month and if i'm not working or recruiting my biggest i don't know if it's a passion or what i love to do or vices i I actually love mma i love mma fighting i love to read about it or listen to what's going on with it it's just because i just think those guys are some of the toughest guys in the world and I really respect what they do and what they put their bodies through and just the guts and uh, the grit that they show for what they do. So I really love, I, I buy damn near every pay-per-view that comes out. And whatnot. <laughs> so I do that. I used to be an avid golfer, but I've kind of put down the golf clubs now. And, you know, I just enjoy hanging out with my daughter and watching her grow up. It's fun and running around the house with her or amusement parts. If I do have some off time, we were um, when we were off this past week and went to Bush Gardens, they're actually at Disney now. So I uh, just nice. kind of really just doing things with, with them. Favorite ride. I'm, I'm a big theme park guy as well. What's your, <laughs> your favorite ride at all the parks? I'm not a big theme park guy. I'm oh, not no. a big ride guy, but what did I get on with her? We got on, I can't even name because she's a young, I don't get on her myself. So, <laughs> um, but we got on this little roller coaster. She barely passed the height for and she didn't know it was a roller coaster because when we were in line, I never let her look that it was a little small roller coaster. So anyway, that's my new favorite ride because she was scared, but she was screaming like she was really enjoying it. But she was scared to death she wouldn't get back on it if we tried to pay her, <laughs> pay her uh, ten thousand, whatever you know, kid right. would, would want. So right. you know, but you know, just seeing her um, have fun like that—that's kind of cool. But I don't get on any myself to be honest, because that's that's not how I roll anymore. <laughs> I guess, at my age. 
you get older, it happens. I, I understand it. Believe me. A <laughs> uh, couple final things for you, just uh, bringing things back to spring ball and, and what you've got in front of you. What are the challenges looking ahead when you know now you're opening a week ahead of schedule and you're also having the game against Miami? It's just right off the bat, huge Woo! game, Miami. Does that put even more emphasis on what you accomplish in the spring? Definitely. It definitely puts more emphasis on what we're able to accomplish this spring. Um, it definitely puts more emphasis on what we got to do as a cornerbacks group because the guys um, that have not practiced this spring um, are guys, are, are a lot of guys too that's got to be able to catch up and expedite their process to be able to play an early game. Um, you know, I'm talking about Marco mm-hmm. uh, Wilson. I'm talking about. Um, Jaden Hill, who's a true freshman who got the same injury as Marco, who hasn't practiced. You talk about Chris still getting a lot of reps, but he's still a freshman and he's still got a learning curve. You got Kyrie Elam and Chester Kimbrough, guys that are coming in and going to have a learning curve. And you're, 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 it's not like you're playing, you know, some smaller opponent right off the bat. You're playing Miami. So, you know, just the urgency of everything is going to be expedited and and at least the teachings and things that we're doing that the spring um the foundation has got to be solid so we can hit fall camp running one of the i guess the upsides having a lot of guys out means there's young guys that have a chance to make an impression that's always one of the cool things that happens during the spring is you see people emerge so i'm curious from your standpoint which players have really stood out and you anticipate maybe you're going to surprise people this year well, the like you said, injury builds depth. I do believe that. It makes your team stronger when you do get your healthy guys back. And um, guys like um, you can see Brian Edwards really make a, a constant improvement. Chris Steele, you know, he probably wouldn't be getting as many reps um, if he were not with, with the first unit um, that he's getting right now. So you could see him constantly getting better. So those guys are getting better. Austin Taylor's a walk-on guy who's getting a a lot of reps and all those guys are, are, are much better and farther along than they probably would have been had everybody been healthy. So it just makes us a stronger unit once we get everybody back. Final question for you. Uh, we know for sure that you're going to win the orange and blue game. That's never a question. So given that that's already there, what are the metrics for success? What are you going to be looking for? Just looking for guys to go out and, and kind of have a standard of, I want to execute. I want to play fast. I want to be physical. Just the, the things that's kind of our mantras and stuff like that. Playing with a Gator standard and that's just really executing our position. Finishing plays and um, not giving up anything cheap. You know, if those guys can just, each one of those guys get better from, you know, today's practice. Watch it on film in the meeting tomorrow and um, be better. You know, I really like you know, the foundation that we built going into summertime in the 2019 season. Well, Coach Gray, we're really, really happy you're back in Gainesville, and we thank you so much for spending some time with us. No problem. Okay, thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. The Orange and Blue game kicks off at 1 o'clock on Saturday, streaming live on the SEC Network Plus and the Gator IMG Sports Network. We'll be back next week to break it all down, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in the swamp.